Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Another episode of the Mid-American Bandwagon Podcast, episode 63, coming to you here live this evening. It's week three of college football. I am Zach Folidor, joined as always by my co-host, Steve Helwick. Steve, we had week one of the NFL this past weekend, in addition to a a good slate of college football. I got to be honest, I know you're a Cardinals fan. Cardinals look great. Steelers look great. I'm ready to book it now. Super Bowl in February, Steelers-Cardinals. We have a little repeat of 2009. Yeah, that, that didn't go our way last time from a Cardinal <laughs> perspective, but that, that Steelers defense looked great. And how about all the Mac guys from that Steelers team? I said their first touchdown was Big Ben, Miami grad to Deontay Johnson, a Toledo guy. And then yeah. Ulysses Gilbert from Akron right. gets a special teams touchdown for his first career score. So that was kind of an incredible performance to see from a action perspective and the Steelers defense. So that, that was fun to see on week one. One other Mac guy I want to give a shout out to for NFL week one was Max Crosby for the Raiders last night. Yes. Just tearing up the Ravens offensive line, got two sacks, got in the backfield almost every play. You could see his impact and the fact that he had one FBS offer from Eastern Michigan, an overlooked prospect. And even when he was at Eastern Michigan, he was a little bit overlooked. And now when I look at NFL defensive ends, he's one of the best in the league. So great to see Max Crosby thriving in Vegas. Absolutely agree. Could not agree more with Max Crosby. Uh, fourth round pick out of Eastern Michigan back in 2019, really thriving for the the, the silver and black right now. And uh, what a game that was last night. We had mm-hmm. a lot of great games in the NFL week one, but that's not what we're here to talk about right now. We are here to talk about, we are uh, two weeks down into the college football season now couple of really interesting matchups in the Mac this week or this past weekend, I should say, Steve. Uh, curious to get your thoughts, just generally speaking, on uh, kind of what you saw from, from the Mac this weekend. I know it's a power five matchup, some, some group of five matchups, uh, some, good, some good games here uh, this past weekend. Obviously, uh, Toledo with the heartbreak at Notre Dame. Buffalo and Ball State couldn't quite keep up with their power five opponents. But wanted to get your thoughts, generally speaking, about uh, the, looking back at week two for the Mac here. I'm going to start with my most impressive team, and it's also the most heartbreaking team, and that's the Toledo Rockets. I think that's the lead story here. Toledo had its had a number 10 team in the country on their ropes playing Notre Dame in South Bend, and they had the lead with one minute and 35 seconds left but couldn't finish a three-play, 75-yard drive, which lasted 26 seconds. That's unacceptable for Toledo's defense. And you could you could taste the upset coming when Daquan Finn had his 26-yard run in the yeah, final yeah. two minutes of that game. And just to watch it all be torn to shreds by Michael Mayer and that Notre Dame offense, that was just a gut-wrenching feeling for the Rockets on the verge of a top-10 win, one of the program's most iconic wins since 
I know they only went three and nine that year, but since they beat Michigan at the big house in 2008. So it, it was, it was unfortunate to see Toledo lose. And I've been just replaying that in hindsight in my head and saying, what if Daquan Finn went down at the one, then you can just kneel at the one yard line and have Thomas Clucky, your kicker. That's eight for eight on field goals in his career and 22 of 23 on extra points. He can come out and kick that game winner with under 15 seconds to go. And that's a Toledo win. So Obviously, Duquan Finn's not thinking that when he has a wide open QB, when he has a wide open zone read to the end zone, Notre Dame completely bites on Bryant Kobach on that play and he's wide open. But just the defensive breakdown combined with that thought, it's so much for Toledo because they really should have won that game. Really should have won that game. Really, that, that's one. I mean, heartbreak almost doesn't even begin to describe it for Toledo fans because it was so close. And like you said, it's easy to look back and hide, have, say, hindsight being 2020 and say Daquan Finn should have gone down there on the one. Uh, but at the same time, like you said, the, the, defense, the defense on that final drive, I got to be honest with you, Steve. After, um, I, I would say, coming into the season, um, I had Toledo kind of – I might have even had them – depending on my mood, when you ask me, I might've even had them below Western Michigan in the Western division. You know, I kind of had like ball state, Western Michigan, Toledo, one, two, three, Western Michigan and ball state have not done anything significant to impress me thus far. I think Toledo is the best team in that division right now. I agree. I put them number one in my Mac power rankings this week. My rankings are subject to change with high variability at the beginning of the year, because unlike AP voters, I don't just dock a team down six to 10 spots formulaically every single time they lose or put a team up. If they win, I try to focus on all the variables that go into each team. So when Notre Dame, why, why do I have them outside of my top 25 right now? It's because they took overtime to beat Florida state and Florida state just lost to an FCS team an FCS team that got shut out by UAB. And then Notre Dame takes Toledo into a, close finish three-point game so there's so many factors I always try to realize when ranking teams so yes Toledo right now would be my number one team in the MAC due to that close finish in South Bend but the Rockets it's still it's still one and one record for them a loss is a loss and the Rockets need to bounce back on the right track this week agree agree with you and uh, Toledo has a uh, has an interesting matchup this week uh, with a easy uh, matchup what's that an easy matchup. Colorado easy. State lost yeah, to the team yeah. in Vanderbilt. Yes, Colorado State not not in a great place right now. Former Boston College coach Steve Adazio there. Uh, his heat or his seat seems to be heating up a little bit there in Fort Collins. On the other side of the spectrum this week, Steve talking about a great performance in Toledo. We got to look at the other end of this too. Hmm. Man, a rough start to the season for the Ohio Bobcats here. Yes, Ohio. <laughs> I mean, I, I said we, we talked about Mac Power Rankings, which we release on Hustle Belt every week. I have Bowling Green at 10th. I have Akron at 11th. Yeah. That's I'm how disappointing you. Ohio has been. Agree completely. I, I like, I really, my, you know, the, the reason why I, I felt like I was a little bit higher on Ohio than most coming into this season. The reason I thought that, though, was because 
obviously losing Frank Solich is a, is a major blow. He's a legend. He, he built that program up from, I mean, this was a terrible program before he got there, but Tim Albin was his offensive coordinator for that entire time. This offensive, this offense was really, really good for the last four or five years there at Ohio. They have, so they still have their offensive coaching staff in place. They still have most of their returning production on offense back this year. I really felt like there were a lot of elements left over from the last couple of seasons that this team was still going to be at least competent, right? But now through two games, I, I don't recognize this, this Ohio team. I mean, you only put up nine points on Syracuse in, in, in week one here against an FCS Duquesne team in week two, you get out gained. You barely reach the 300 yard plateau against Duquesne. You get out gained 362 to 307. You know, the, the, this team has always kind of prided itself on, on running the ball. You only have 139 rush yards here. You wonder why they didn't run the ball more. I mean, Demontre Tuggle only with seven carries in the game. Uh, I don't know. Not much is working for the Bobcats right now. And it doesn't get any easier for the Bobcats either. They go down to uh, Lafayette, Louisiana on Thursday to take on the Raging Cajuns. Then they go to Evanston to take on Northwestern. Uh, Ohio all of a sudden looking at 0-4 start here, Steve. I agree. And the frustrating thing about Saturday is you look at the box score and you see Ohio committed zero turnovers. So there's not even an excuse, like an unfortunate bounce on a pick six or a fumble in negative territory. There's no excuse, really. It was just horrible offensive output. They completed 14 of 22 passes, didn't even register 170 passing yards. They were kind of pedestrian in the run game, too. And then defensively, they gave up too much to Duquesne. And Ohio had a had an attempt at a comeback at the end, but they were down 25 to 13. They didn't just lose. They they really got beat by an FCS team. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they had missed field goals. They there were there were safeties and other things that went Duquesne's way in this game, but it was just a lack of execution from Ohio. And the offense has been such a problem this year. They didn't score a touchdown against Syracuse. I understand Syracuse held Rutgers to only 17 points last week, but still this considering the returning production, this team has, and we know what Demontre Tuggle, O'Shawn Allison, what they're capable of in the run game, as we saw in the 2019 season, Still, we need to learn more about Curtis Rourke as he never really had a full season last year and we never got to see him develop in that 2020 pandemic season. But Ohio just doesn't seem to have the offensive firepower right now needed to compete in the MAC, and they seem to be headed to Bowling Green and Akron territory. And I'm sure we'll touch on Bowling Green and Akron later, but I thought both of those teams have already shown necessary strides and they're not just getting beat over like UConn every week. Agree completely. And yes, we, we will get to that. And we, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to talk about both those teams and it does appear that way. It, it kind of, this, what I'm watching happen to Ohio right now, it kind of feels like what happened to Bowling Green in 2016, mm-hmm. where Dino Babers left. And all of a sudden the, the, the Falcons went from conference title contenders to the bottom of the barrel in, in the matter of one year. And Hopefully uh, that, you know, hopefully Ohio can get the ship righted here over the next couple of weeks. I do want to give one other quick shout out here uh, before we move into looking at our week two or week three games, just an individual performer. I don't know. Maybe I, I don't think this is too big of a stretch here, Steve, but maybe it is reel me back in. If I'm overreacting here, I have to give a shout out my, my guy, Harrison Whaley at Northern Illinois. 
I think he has become, he might be the best running back in the Mac right now, better than Kevin Marks, better than Bryant Kobach. I mean, this is a guy averaging six yards a carry leads the Mac in rushing yards, uh, three touchdowns here in two games, had another big game this past weekend. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the, the game against uh, the Northern Illinois game against Wy the Wyoming Cowboys, 26 carries, 179 yards, two touchdowns. I love watching this guy play Steve. Yes, that was a name I was hoping you were going to say when he wanted to give that shout out because that that's who deserves it. And NIU was really in a hole to start that game down 28 to 10 at halftime. And it was a valiant effort to fight back, although a home loss to Wyoming is a little disappointing, especially after that win, at, that win in Atlanta. But Harrison Whaley was the guy who brought them back in that second half just was punching out eight yard run after nine yard run, moving the sticks, had a 14 yard touchdown immediately after a fumble in the early fourth quarter to finally cut it to one score. So NIU, I thought did a tremendous job of coming back and riding Whaley through that. And it's, it's nice to see NIU be an offensive juggernaut again, because for a while there were those Husky teams that were just grinding out these low scoring games. And the offense was a little frustrating even in that Mac championship year, I would say. So seeing them have a run game to base their offense on is just really promising. Now, if they could limit the interceptions in that Wyoming game, I think the Huskies would have come out on top, losing the interception battle three to zero to Sean Chambers and the Cowboys. But Whaley, he is a talent to watch. And this conference has produced so many great running backs over the years. And it's, it's great to see him emerge. 179 yards, two touchdowns. What a performance by him. Yeah, it really was. And, and uh, he was, you know, he had some moments last year where you could tell he was going to be good. And it's great to see him kind of put it all together this year. So um, let's uh, let's move into our, our week two games or I keep saying week two, week three games here, Steve. We uh, this week we have three FCS matchups, Long Island traveling to take on Miami on Saturday at 3.30. That'll be the Red Hawks home opener. Akron gets a chance at a win against the Bryant Bulldogs of Rhode Island. That game's also Saturday at 3.30. And then Murray State travels to Bowling Green. That one at uh, the Dewey will kick at 5 p.m. Akron and Bowling Green, both looking for their first wins of the year. And based on the performances that they put together last week, I think we both can agree that they, um, you know, that they, they, they'll pick up a victory here. Then before we get into our week three games, actually, Steve, let's let's talk a little bit about Akron and Bowling Green, because you made a good point earlier. Uh, just, you know, the performances they've put on the field, they both seem like they're taking steps forward Uh from what we've seen the last few years, Akron competitive with Temple, although they had a fast start, couldn't sustain it. Bowling Green, though, against South Alabama really hung in that entire game. I was impressed with what I saw from Matt McDonald and the, uh, and the, some of the, you know, the offense on uh, for Bowling Green. Yes, it wasn't the Bowling Green style of offense I expected if Bowling Green was going to have a good game. I mean, last year we saw Terry and Stewart have some great performances for the Falcons. And for Bowling Green to finish with nine rushing yards, and have that game come down to the wire, that was impressive for me. Matt McDonald last year did not really show the necessary production out of a quarterback, as I'd hope. A lot of games with sub-40 completion percentages, a lot of interceptions. So to see him go out there with 300 passing yards and a touchdown for Bowling Green was a real promising sight for the offense. And this was a team that definitely needed pass catchers to step in in place of the departed tight end, Quentin Morris. And I thought there, there were a lot of guys that did that on Saturday. And he spread the wealth pretty well. Christian Sims and Tyrone Broden were two guys that really stepped up having 76 yards apiece. Sims was 
McDonald's favorite target with eight receptions. So it's nice to see Bowling Green have a reliable receiver emerge like that. But McDonald having his career high passing yards, it couldn't have come at a better time. And now right before they play an FCS team, I think Bowling Green now has belief that they're a team that can compete with other teams in FBS. I mean, South Alabama is coming off a 31 to seven win over Southern Miss. This is a team with a quarterback in Jake Bentley that started games for South Carolina and Utah. They have one of the top receivers in the country and Jalen Tolbert. And for Bowling Green to hold that offense to 22 points and have this come down to the wire, I'm nothing but impressed with the Falcons from their performance Saturday. Now, I am a little concerned with this FCS opponent that they're facing because it's the same team that played Cincinnati last week in Murray State. Yeah. And they were tied with the Bearcats seven to seven at halftime before Cincinnati blew them out of the water. So it's not the easiest FCS opponent based on my one game research against Cincinnati. But <laughs> I think that Bowling Green showed the necessary steps it needs to become to establish a foundation to get to the next step. And you have to give Scott Leffler credit for that because this offseason, it looked like they were going nowhere. I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you. It seems like there is starting to, to be some progress there in Bowling Green. And I know back when we were doing our previews, talking about Bowling Green, talking about, you know, what do we need to see from this team this year? And we were saying, you know, if, they, if, we're, if, if they're going to give us another 1-11, 2-10 season, not sure that Scott Leffler is going to be around to see another year and see this rebuild, you know, see through this rebuild. But now what we're seeing, especially, you know, after what we've seen from Ohio and I'll be that game against Akron will still be interesting. But, you know, if you can pick up a couple of additional victories here that maybe you wouldn't have thought of prior to the season, it seems like there is progress being made at Bowling Green. I think you could kind of see this, say the same thing for Temple to an extent. It seems like I know Cato Nelson uh, got, a, got injured uh, against Temple on Saturday uh, when he, one of the plays where he was sacked. DJ Irons, the sophomore quarterback, um, he seems to have, have some juice to him. I mean, he completed, he was, you know, only 12 for 22, but he did throw a touchdown. Also sophomore receiver, Michael Matheson seems to be uh, you know, emerging as a playmaker for the uh, the zips on the outside, eight catches for 101 yards for him on Saturday. To Akron was up 14 nothing earlier in this game. They just couldn't sustain it, unfortunately. Yeah, that was definitely surprising to see them come out to that start, especially offensively, because we haven't really seen Akron put up those types of performances, save for their win against Bowling Green last year. So. The home atmosphere, I think, helped the Zips at InfoCision Stadium there. And I, I was I was really impressed by Iron's performance in this game. So Akron's another team like Bowling Green that looks like they have nowhere to go but up. And then you have to credit linebacker Bubba Arslanian, just a tackle machine, 17 yeah. hits in this game. And he's, he seems like he's guaranteed for double digits almost every single week. So Arslanian is a good defensive foundation to build on for this team already has 25 tackles in two games this season yeah definitely so uh gonna be interesting to see we'll, we'll certainly uh be keeping an eye on both of those games this week again Akron taking on Bryant Bowling Green taking on Murray State uh both FCS opponents both uh both of our max squads here looking for their first wins of the year let's move into our um our our FBS versus FBS matchups here for this week Steve starting on Thursday night national stage and I think maybe before the season uh, a lot of Ohio fans probably had this game circled as an exciting matchup going up against the the Raging Cajuns on national television ESPN Thursday night 
However, after these first two weeks, I'm not sure how excited Ohio fans are to show off their product on national television. Ohio currently a 20-point underdog in this one. The total set at 54-and-a-half. Now, uh, Louisiana did struggle a little bit with an FCS opponent of their own this past week, Nichols State. Uh, they beat the Colonels 27-24. It was 27-10 in the fourth quarter before uh, Nichols got a couple of late touchdowns to make it a little bit closer. But the Cajuns here, Steve, I mean, they were ranked at the beginning of the year, uh, went into Austin week one, lost to the, the Longhorns 38-18, 27-24 last week over Nichols. So it seems like they're they're still trying to find their footing which you could say about a lot of teams this year, but you still have a great quarterback in Levi Lewis. He's completing 64% of his passes. Uh, you got uh, Chris Smith leading the, the the running back attack. I still like this Louisiana team a lot, Steve. And unfortunately for Bobcats fans, I, I don't see this one being very close. What do you think? Yes, Louisiana has been one of the most disappointing teams this year. And that loss to Texas looks even worse considering what Arkansas did to the Horns last week. And Louisiana hasn't been able to run the ball this season. They had... They had a lot of continuity this offseason, but two things they lost were their two-star running backs from last year, Trey Ragus and Elijah Mitchell. So they averaged less than three yards per game on the ground against an FCS team. But the good news for the Raging Cages is Ohio has not been able to stop the run. Ohio ranks 120th in the country in the run defense, allowing 234 yards per game approximately. So I think that the Cajuns should be able to find that against the Bobcats this week. For Ohio, I don't really know too many adjustments that I be able yeah. to make because it seems like the team's at ground zero right now, but I would say that feeding Demontre Tuggle could be a good start because what we've seen, what he can do with his shed tackle ability in the past and how he works in an open field as we've seen him on kick returns. So I would try to do a heavy dose of Tuggle this game, although it didn't work against Duquesne last week. Nichols was able to, was they were able to force some runs on Louisiana. So the opportunities there for Ohio, but I don't trust Ohio traveling into Lafayette and getting this game. I mean, we remember a pretty good Ohio team just a couple of years ago got blasted by Louisiana in 2019. So yeah. I am not feeling the most promising about this one on Thursday night for the Bobcats and who are staring down an 0-3 start for the Tim Alvin era. I agree with you. I agree with you. And it's – I um. The, the more I think about this, the more this box score from the Duquesne, Ohio game on Saturday, really just, I, I can't understand it. I mean, you were, so Demontre Tuggle has two touchdowns in the first quarter, one of them being at the opening kickoff return, right? But so you're up 13-3, you know, five minutes into this game, even after Duquesne comes back a little bit for, you know, you're, you're leading at the half. So in my mind, why not try to establish the run in this game? And yet O'Shawn Allison, only 12 carries. DeMontre Tuggle, only seven carries. And both of them averaged over six yards a carry. It's like they still can be effective running the ball. They just haven't, I don't know, they haven't been trying to establish the run, which is really, really interesting to me. I'm not sure I understand that. I, I feel like I'm with you. I don't know what adjustment the, the Bobcats could make, but I do feel as if going towards more of a run-heavy game plan uh, might benefit them. I mean, they were ba balanced on Saturday, 22 passes for Curtis Rourke, 24 rushes. Uh, so I could, I would think maybe going, making that more, you know, of a 60, 40 run versus pass that feels more like Ohio football to me. I'm not saying that that would, they would have success doing that, but I do feel like maybe 
they got away from running the ball a little bit here to start the year. And they, you know, they still averaged almost six yards a carry against Duquesne. They just, they only ran the ball 24 times. Defensively, there's absolutely no pressure. They've been applying only one sack in each of these games against teams that, I mean, against an FCS team and another team that's offensive line didn't do a great job of pass protection in the prior year. They're not really putting pressure on the run game also. And a lot of that falls on the front seven. I knew that the losses of Austin Conrad from the defensive end position and Jared Dorsa from the middle linebacker would definitely hurt Ohio this year. And those are already showing. So the Bobcats really need new names to step up and make, make names out of themselves this week. And I would, I would consider expanding the depth chart and trying to give more guys opportunities to see who's going to snatch that position, snatch that starting role by the throat. I agree with that completely. I agree with that. I think at this point, you might you might as well see what you have down there on the depth chart. So Ohio looking to get uh, into the win column, although tough. Uh, it's a tall task to go down to Lafayette and, and, and knock off the Cajuns. Again, Ohio a 20-point underdog in this one. That one kicks Thursday at 8 p.m. on ESPN. Uh, let's move into our Saturday games here, Steve. An interesting matchup in upstate New York. Buffalo, the offense couldn't get going on Saturday against Nebraska. They've got another interesting, very interesting matchup here. Uh, Saturday at noon, they welcome the 16th-ranked Coastal Carolina Chanticleers. Buffalo, a 10.5-point underdog in this one. The t- uh, total set at 58. Uh, Steve, Coastal, I, I, I watched uh, – I caught portions of that game against Kansas on, uh, on Friday. They knocked off the Jayhawks 49-22. to this offense still looks great. I mean, Grayson McCall, 17 for 21 in this game, two, uh, two touchdowns, no interceptions. They got a couple of good-looking running backs, a couple of really good-looking receivers. Um, I, I like this Coastal team, and I think Buffalo, after what I saw from them against Nebraska on Saturday, I wonder how, how well they're going to keep up. Yes, I, I still like the makeup of this Coastal team. Looked pretty strong out of the gate Friday. Struggled a little bit in the second quarter, end of the second quarter in the beginning of the third, but then came back to have three unanswered touchdowns to cover the spread and beat the Jayhawks for the third straight year. Grayson McCall is extremely efficient. They lost their running back CJ Marable this offseason, but Reese White seems to be taking over with just, just fine. He had 102 yards and three touchdowns last week, and I really like their tight end Isaiah Likely, who's just going to be a big target for them. But the thing that makes Coastal Carolina special, I think, is their defense. And they call them the Black Swarm, and there's so many great names on them at all three levels. You have Jeffrey Gunter, who's your edge rusher, who's just a really physical guy, and I want to see what he does against this Buffalo offensive line. Buffalo's offensive line still has not allowed a sack this year. It seems like we talk about that for three straight years now because since October 2019, they've only allowed two sacks in total, which is absolutely ridiculous considering that they've replaced three offensive linemen in each of the last two off seasons. But point aside, this, this coastal Carolina defense likes to get pressure and they had six sacks and 11 tackles for loss last week. So something's got to give in this matchup because they are aggressive and they have a lot of guys that have really good quick feet, quick moves and can get to the quarterback another name I like is Josiah Stewart who had three and a half sacks against the Jayhawks last week and then Teddy Gallagher used to have the mullet from the linebacker position is probably the premier run stopper that Kevin Marks will need to watch out for on this team so a lot of good names on this coastal defense and that's not a sign that you want to see for Buffalo especially when your offense was limited to just a field goal a week ago 
Kevin Marks didn't have a hundred yard performance, didn't light up a defense like we're used to seeing Buffalo running backs doing. Then Kyle Van Treese just completed about half of his passes and really struggled getting completions. And Nebraska, I felt like they had the Ball State strategy in the MAC championship game of kind of containing the box and forcing Van Treese to throw 50 times in order to beat them. And we know that Buffalo, that's not their preferred style of play. And on the other hand, Adrian Martinez was just running too long and he was he had two 68-yard completions to Samari Torre. So it was like deja vu in the first and fourth quarter for the Bulls giving up those long touchdowns. I mean, they're lucky Ohio played last week or else we'd just be talking about how disappointing <laughs> the Bulls came out last week yeah. because this Nebraska team, they lost to Illinois, and Illinois hasn't looked special since. So I don't think this is a good loss for Buffalo, but if they can somehow – they have the home field advantage. If they can somehow get past this coastal defense and not your ranked win, then all, all is forgiven at UB Stadium. So that, that's a very good point, Steve. I think when, when I look at the, the Buffalo, you know, when I, when I look back at that Nebraska game and, you know, looking at the box score here, the thing that jumps out to me first off, Kyle Van Trees threw 50 passes in this game. Mm-hmm. I obviously, I understand you're behind the entire time. You're, you're trying to come back. I, 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 I'd have to double check this, but I can't imagine they, there was a single game in the Lance Leipold era where Buffalo threw the ball 50 times. There's no way. And when you look at the run game, I mean, Kevin Marks still averaged four yards a carry. I mean, they're, they're still averaged 4.1 yards per carry on the ground. That's definitely not as good as we're used to seeing from, uh, from Buffalo, but it's, you know, it's uh, obviously you lose Jarrett Patterson. That's, that's going to play a part. Kevin Marks, 21 for 85. Dylan McDuffie also had seven uh, for, for 46. I, um, I think the one thing that um, the one thing that does give me hope for Buffalo in this game, I agree with you. I think this coastal Carolina defense is great. Uh, however, I did, you know, Kansas did, bust a few long runs on this game. I mean, Mm -hmm. Jason Bean had a 34 yard touchdown run and a 46 yard touchdown run on back-to-back drives there for the Jayhawks. So I do feel like in the run game, there might be some opportunities for the bulls here, but I also, what you're saying about it's kind of strength on strength here with the offensive line versus the pressure that coastal Carolina is able to generate on defense. It feels like how the bulls offensive line handles that is going to determine the outcome in this one. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And first thing I do want to give a stat of the day. Yes, I, I knew exactly that a Lance Leipold team has thrown more than 50 times in a game before because Drew Anderson, if you remember him, has the Mac all-time single-game passing record with 597 yards and seven touchdowns in a game when they took Western Michigan to seven overtimes in 2017. So Drew Anderson completed 35 of 61 passes that game. So yes, it has happened before. But yeah, I don't think that Buffalo prefers to have Vantries throw this 50 times in order to beat Coastal and keeping things on the ground worked pretty well for Kansas. Vantries isn't the best scrambler. I mean, he has a few naked bootlegs on short yard situations, so he doesn't provide that same burst of speed that Jason Bean does. But you, you got to get Kevin Marks. You got to get Kevin Marks going in this one to have a chance against the Chanticleers. Yeah, I'm with you. I think that that feels like the the Bulls' really only chance to to win in this game is establishing the run, letting Kevin Marks get going, and seeing where that takes you. Uh, an intriguing matchup here 
Uh, Northern Illinois coming off that loss to Wyoming 50 to 43. The Cowboys went into the cabin and, and stole that one. I shouldn't say stole. They, they won that game. Uh, Thornton and I use comeback at the end and I travels to Michigan. Uh, the Wolverines uh, is their second uh, Mac matchup of the season after defeating Western Michigan in week one, Michigan also debuting in the, uh, the AP poll this week after defeating Washington 31 to 10 on Saturday. The Wolverines, a 27-point favorite in this one, the total 54-and-a-half. Steve, the, the Huskies have certainly been improved through two weeks. We already mentioned Harrison Whaley in the run game. It certainly seems like the Huskies are establishing an identity. However, uh, this is a tall task here for the Huskies going into the big house, especially with how Michigan's playing right now. Do I dare say what college football fans will hate me to say? The Michigan Wolverines are underranked for once. Whoa. People are sleeping on this Michigan team. I think that they belong a lot higher than, what are they, 25th in the AP pool? Yeah. This Michigan team, I know Washington lost to an FCS team in the opening week, but Michigan just pounded them through the run game. They had yeah. two 150, 150-yard rushers in this, and Blake Corman and Hassan Haskins, two guys that played very well in that Western Michigan game in the opener as well. I don't know how NIU is going to stop them. This NIU defense that gave up 50 points a week ago. So Michigan did, didn't really need to pass. They put up uh, they put up Kyle Vantry's passing numbers from <laughs> 2020 with Caden McNamara only passing 15 times in the convincing win and only going for 44 yards. So Michigan has an identity established as a team that has two excellent running backs and they can just ground it on opponents. Then their defense has done a lot of great things this year. Ever since that first drive that Western Michigan has took it down on them, I felt like Michigan's defense has stepped up ever since. Aiden Hutchinson is a tremendous pass rusher that I would fear if I was NIU. Uh, Rocky Lombardi needs to work a little on handling pressure better. He had three interceptions last week, and some of those were when facing pressure situations. So I think this Michigan team matches up excellently against the Huskies, a different Huskies than they faced last week. And I think that NIU is probably going to drop to – they're definitely going to drop to one and two after after that great opening week winning over Georgia Tech. I think winning at the big house against this rushing attack and this physical defense is a little too much to ask for the Huskies, especially when you look at what Western Michigan did to the Wolverines. And right now I'd say Western Michigan's a better team than NIU. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think – I was in, in week one when Northern Illinois played Georgia Tech, I was, I was pleasantly surprised by Rocky Lombardi. And then this past week against Wyoming, I was reminded why I was skeptical of him because as you said, he doesn't, didn't seem to handle pressure well from the Cowboys defense. You mentioned the three interceptions, barely completed half of his passes. I think the, it seemed like I, I feel like the identity that Northern Illinois is trying to build of playing good defense and establishing the run. It feels like Northern Illinois is trying to build their program similar to the way that Michigan has built their program. And if you know what I mean, it feels like there's similar styles here. And yet I, I think it's just the difference here. And this one's going to be the talent disparity, right? I mean, Michigan held Washington last week, 32 carries for 50 yards for the Huskies. And as you mentioned, Blake Corm with 170 rushing yards, Hassan Haskins, 155, 343 rushing yards in this game for the, the Michigan. They do not care about balance. 56 rushing attempts, 15 pass attempts. Um, I, I just, you know, I think Northern Illinois, the trajectory is up. I, I like the way the arrow is pointing for the Huskies. 
I just don't know how they're going to be able to, to, to hold up in this game. I mean, Wyoming ran for almost 200 yards on this team last week. I don't see them stopping the, the, the Wolverines rushing attack. This does feel like a lower scoring game to me. I don't know. I mean, I mean, I feel like there's going to be a lot of long drives here, although that could go out the window if Michigan cups a couple of, you know, breaks a couple of long runs, but um, you know, I, I would like to think that Northern Illinois could keep this within the, the 27, but I, I think that even that's a tall task. I think Northern Illinois, we're, you're getting better, but I don't think this is a much bigger stage than anything they've experienced thus far, even just comparing it going down to Georgia Tech. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm rambling now, but I feel like if I was going to have to pick a, a, in the spread on this game, I, would, I think my heart would tell me to take NIU, but I'm not sure that they can keep it within that 27. I like the sound of 42 to 10 to this one. Something similar to the Western Michigan game. Yeah. Rocky Lombardi's Rocky Lombardi has beat this team before. He beat Michigan last year with Michigan State. It was more of a defensive-minded game for the Spartans in that one. A lot of turnovers and defensive stops for the Spartans in that one. But, you know, Lombardi, this game's going to mean a lot to him. So it'll be exciting for him to go back to the big house and see how he performs against the Wolverines. Very true. That's a very good point. Very good point. So that one kicks uh, from the big house at uh, noon on Saturday. Uh, Northern Illinois looking to pick up their second Power 5 upset of the season. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another opportunity for a potential power five upset here. And this is one that's actually uh, is quite interesting to me. The Western Michigan Broncos and Caleb Ellaby traveling here to the steel city to take on the Pitt Panthers first ever meeting between these two programs. And uh, Steve, I know Western Michigan was playing an FCS opponent in Illinois state last week, but the defensive performance that the Broncos put out was, was, was pretty staggering. They held Illinois state to 57 total yards in this game, 28 rushing yards and 29 passing yards. Obviously this uh, represents quite a step up in competition taken on the Panthers Pitt with a, actually a really nice come from behind victory over Tennessee Panthers got down early in this one, thanks to a, bl- a blocked punt. And it was a, uh, you know, 10, nothing, uh, early in this game before the offense got going for the Panthers, 41 to 34. It seems like it's usually a def- defense first team, but it's the offense this year that's kind of led the way for the Panthers. Kenny Pickett feels like he's been there for 10 years uh, under center for the Panthers. Uh, this is an interesting matchup for, for me, though, Steve. I think that um, the talent disparity here is probably not as great as it was for the Broncos against uh, Michigan a couple weeks ago. I shouldn't even say probably. It's not as great as it was against Michigan a couple weeks ago. Still, I'm not saying that Western Michigan is going to come in and win this game, but I do think this is a, a game where uh, they, they can come in and, and, and contend with the Panthers. Yep, Pitt is the your favorite random number generator in college football. <laughs> yeah. The team that beats number two Clemson the, in 2016, the team that beats number two West Virginia in 07, the team that beats number two Miami in 2017, the team that takes down UCF's regular season win streak. And then they're also the team that loses games to Akron over that time span or 
beats FCS team Delaware by one possession. So you never know what you're getting with the Pitt Panthers. Uh, I mean, you're getting between a five and seven and eight and five record. And I think every single year of 2010 supports that. But this year, what I like with Pitt is they're a very good offensive team. They lost a lot of their great defensive guys last year to the NFL. Damar Hamlin, Paris Ford from the safety spots. You had Rashad Weaver, who was a tremendous pass rusher. But Kenny Pickett and his wide receiving group is something that I really liked against Tennessee on Saturday. Jordan Addison and Taysier Mack are the leaders of that unit. And Western Michigan did struggle a little bit in containing Ronnie Bell and some of those Wolverines receivers in the opening week, which gives me a little concern in this one. But the thing I really like about Pitt is how poised they were on third down last week. Narduzzi, I know he's gotten a lot of flack for some play calling and decision making in the past, but I thought Pitt ran great plays on those third downs and Kenny Pickett looked so poised and would always find a receiver and deliver a solid strike to Addison or Mack or Jared Wayne or whoever his guy was. So I think Pitt has a very composed offense this year and they didn't seem to get really rattled by that early deficit against Tennessee. So a lot of things I'm liking about this Panthers offense early in the season, but then again, I do like a lot of pieces on Western Michigan's offense. And I think this one is shaping up to be a shootout. Caleb Ellaby, we've seen his efficiency in past years before. He has yet to throw an interception this year and is completing over 60% of his passes after a slightly disappointing week against Michigan. And then this team can run the ball. Ladarius Jefferson and Sean Tyler are two very viable running backs for this Western Michigan team. I think that they'll be able to pound Pitt for some yards on the ground, uh, at least a better output than what Tennessee was able to get last week. So I do like Western Michigan in that regard. And Western Michigan this year, they've produced five sacks. They've been solid at getting to the quarterback. So that's one thing that I have my eye on on this one because Tennessee last week kept getting in the backfield. They had 10 tackles for loss on the Pitt Panthers. So Western Michigan can invade the backfield, try to pressure Pickett. I think that their offense will be in good enough shape to keep this one close. I think what you just mentioned there is the ultimate key to this game is you have to get pressure on Pickett. I think if you get pressure on Pickett, that that will kind of throw the Panthers off off schedule. I mean, Pickett has been really, really good this year. Pickett, I, I feel like, honestly, um, as someone that lives in Pittsburgh, has a lot of friends that are Pitt fans, watches a lot of Pitt games – I feel like Kenny Pickett is is kind of underappreciated as a as a quarterback. I mean, Pitt's been very up and down with him, uh, but not necessarily his fault. I think that's a lot of the frustration that comes out of the Pitt uh, fan base towards Narduzzi has to do with that. But I mean, last week against Tennessee, twenty four of thirty six, two eighty five, two touchdowns, no interceptions. As you mentioned, a lot of great plays on uh, on on third down. I think what worries me uh, for Western Michigan in this game is going to be, are they going to be able to establish the run against Pitt? You look at this game against Tennessee last Saturday, Tennessee, 33 carries for 136 yards. That's four yards a carry now. But if you take now, that includes one 54-yard run from Joe Milton. So you take that one 54-yard run out, your other 32 carries, you got, you know, 92 yards on 32 carries. So you're not, you're barely, at, you're, you're under three yards of carry there for the rest of the game. So this pit rush defense is very good. And so I think from Western Michigan's perspective, you want to be balanced on offense. It's, it, 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 I could see it being hard for them to establish the run in this game. That puts more pressure on Caleb Ellaby to, you know, if you're going to throw, have more of a pass-heavy game plan. Obviously, 
he's capable of doing that. But then you, you run the risk of getting him under pressure, sacks, stuff of that nature. I really like the front seven for Pitt's defense, I, I, I think is, is very good and I'm a fan of. I do think Pitt, uh, Narduzzi's a good defensive coach. And so that's what worries me. But I also, I agree with you. I do think I like this offense enough, this talent enough that I can see them moving the ball on Pitt. I could see this being a shootout as well. Um, what do you think is, is 15, the, the spread here is 15 in this one. Is that a fair spread to you? Do you think Western Michigan can keep it within two touchdowns here? I'm going to say, yes. I'm going to say pit probably by around 10 in this. Yeah. I think that feels about right. 44 to 35 final, something about that. I'm going to take the Panthers to win because I've been really impressed with their offense early in the season and Western Michigan. They've, they've punched two different weight classes this season. It feels like in Michigan and UMass. And I I know Pitt's a lot close, not UMass, uh, Illinois state getting a little ahead of myself on Eastern Michigan's week three opponent, (laughs) but aside they've, they've punched two different weight classes this year in an FCS team in Michigan. And, I think Pitt's a lot closer to Michigan, but we've seen the variability of Pitt before, and I think that the lack of Pitt's defensive showing allows Western Michigan to have more of a chance of an upset. I feel like that's a lot different when you're playing a team like Michigan that's more defensively sound, that your offense isn't going to be able to get going. I think that they'll be able to ignite the offense against Pitt, and that's why I think that they'll at least keep this one, keep the Panthers in check for at least two or three quarters. It's a great point. That's a great point and certainly something to keep an eye on. So uh, again, Western Michigan visiting Heinz Field, taking on Pitt for the first time ever this Saturday at noon. Uh, Western Michigan, a 15-point underdog in this one, the total at 60 and a half here. Um, and here's another one, another intriguing matchup for us, Steve. Kent State taking on their second top 10 matchup of the year. They travel to Iowa City to Kinnick Stadium to take on the Hawkeyes. Iowa now sitting at number five in the country I don't know if any team has shot up the polls faster here to start the year. I believe they started the year. If I think they were 18th in the preseason, if I'm not mistaken, but two back-to-back victories over Indiana, who was ranked at the time. And then last week, really just suffocating Iowa State's offense. Brock Purdy with three interceptions in that game. Iowa went in to Ames and knocked off the Cyclones 27-17. to Iowa, a 22.5-point favorite in this one with a total 54 and a half. Steve, Kent State reminded us how good they can be on offense on Saturday, putting up 60 on VMI. A little bit of a tougher uh, tougher task here going into Iowa City, though, taking on the Hawkeyes. This might be even tougher than the Texas A&M game for this team to score. Yeah. Kent State, I know Dustin Crum finally got his mojo back, had a few quick possessions. They didn't really require too much out of him against VMI, but it was really the running game which gave a throwback 2020 performance with seven different players scoring a touchdown. Seven yes. different players scored a rushing touchdown. They were six yards short of 500 yards. They were breaking out 40, 50, 60-yard run play after play. So it was just Kent State just running all over the field, just like they did against Bowling Green and Akron in the 2020 season. So it was promising to see. And then their Syracuse transfer, Nikeem Johnson, really stepped up at the wide receiver position. They really needed a receiver to step up against Texas A&M. I liked what I saw from Nikeem Johnson in that one. So I think Kent State's offense is really well set up for Mac play in the future. I just think that Iowa's Iowa. And Sean Lewis has been very clear that this Kent State team is going to schedule tough. And they have. Texas A&M and Iowa are top 10 opponents. And those aren't going to be easy wins for any team in the country. And Kent State, 
they they did a very good job of holding Texas A&M in check for a half. And I think that their secondary is good, to, good enough to compete with even elite programs like Iowa and Texas A&M. But you've seen that those, those insane level defenses can stop even the best of offenses in the country. And that's what we saw week one against Texas A&M. So I'm not giving the golden flashes as great of a chance in Iowa city to pull this one off, but you know, this team's going to show up, you know, they're going to be competitive and you, you know, that I was going to be frustrated with a couple things, maybe containing the run game for a little like A&M was, but overall, I think I was going to hold them below, below three touchdowns, below 20 points and come out with a victory. Yeah, this Iowa defense, I mean, three interceptions each of the first two weeks against two very good quarterbacks in Brock Purdy and, and Michael Penix Jr. from Iowa State and Indiana, respectively. I mean, this Iowa defense uh, thus far this year, I mean, they are not messing around. They gave up only 233 total yards of offense to um, to the Hoosiers in week one and only 339 last week against uh, the Hawkeyes. It's unbelievable how good this defense is playing. Iowa, tell me if you've ever heard, seen anything like this, Steve. Iowa got outgained by 150 yards in this game against Iowa State. They didn't even, the Hawkeyes didn't even break 200 yards of offense, 173 total yards of offense in this game, but four turnovers created by the defense. Um, you know, really that, that'll change the game. That'll change the game. And uh, the Iowa State offense never was able to get going. You know, it was 27-17 uh, was your final, but it was 27-10 here at the end of the fourth quarter before a, uh, a, late, uh, a late garbage time score from the, the Cyclones made it 27-17. I'm with you, Steve. As much as I love Dustin Crum, as much as I love this running attack from Kent State, I just, I see this one playing out similarly to what we saw them uh, against Texas A&M. If, if, you know, if Kent State finds the end zone more than two times, I would be very, very, um, surprised in this game. And I'll also be honest. Um, the, the total in this game is set at 56 and a half. That feels really high for me. Uh, especially seeing how Kent state's offense was handled by Texas A&M in week one. And also just based on the fact that Iowa is Iowa. I mean, mm -hmm. this is never a high scoring team, high powered offense. They scored 34 in, uh, in week one, but that included a, a, a pick six, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, I don't know. This, this feels like, what's that? Two pick sixes. So there you go. Exactly. So, Riley this Moss. Feels, yeah. This, so this feels like, uh, this feels like a game to me that I like, I feel like I was a program that is content to win a game like this, like 35 to seven or something like that. Do, do, am I off base? You think? No, you're right. And I think what we saw Kent state's secondary do against a very talented Texas A&M receiving core makes me believe that Kent State's corners can shut down Iowa's less veteran receiving core. The one guy in the aerial attack for the Hawkeyes that I am concerned is, of course, a tight end because it's Iowa. Sam Laporta <laughs> presents a good size mismatch for a lot of those Kent State guys, and I think he'll be able to draw linebackers and coverage and all that. So I think Laporta is going to be the key for Iowa offensively in this game. But – the, the Hawkeyes defense has done, done too much. And you, you can always say turnovers are lucky and all that, that they produce, but it's not lucky when they do this every single year. Last year, they finished seventh in turnover production in the country. And just a few years before that, they were knocking on the door of the top 10 finishing number 11. It's what this Iowa team does is they force pressure. They create turnovers and 
teams just suffocate as a result of it. And I'll be honest, this Iowa team, they haven't impressed me this season. This is what I expected of them. I thought Indiana and Iowa State were two of the most overrated teams in the country, and I thought that the Hawkeyes would put them in their place. I preseason ranked Iowa number 11, which is higher than most people did. So this is what I expected of the Hawkeyes. This is this is what I thought the standard should be in Iowa this year, and they're living up to it. And they'll have a talented offense on their hands this week. Yeah, certainly. Than they face this year. So I think Iowa's going to live up to the challenge again and just keep rising in the polls until they face somebody who can outgain them. Yeah, you're, I, I agree. I agree. We're going to see what happens. And, uh, you know, this Iowa offense, they just, they don't do much to, they don't do much for me. I don't know. Spencer Petras completing less than 50 or barely 50% of his passes here, only thrown one touchdown. They're only averaging three yards of carry on the ground. So yeah, this, uh, this, this Iowa team, I mean, they are really built on defense. So We'll see how the Golden Flashers are able to uh, to compete against that elite unit on Saturday. They kick at Iowa or uh, at Kinnick Stadium, excuse me, set for three thirty. Um, here's another one: EMU, the, the Eagles traveling to Amherst to take on the Minutemen, former conference mates, the UMass uh, UMass Minutemen. Uh, Saturday at three thirty, Eastern Michigan, an eighteen point road favorite in this one. Third all-time meeting between these two programs. Uh, the first since UMass left the MAC in 2016. UMass surprisingly uh, 2-0 and all-time in this series against the Eagles, uh, coming off a 45-28 loss to BC last week. Prior to that, a 51-7 loss to Pitt in week one. Uh, Steve, I don't know, as much as I like Eastern Michigan, I don't know uh, that 18 points. I don't know. That feels like too many points to me. I don't, I'm not saying that Eagles are going to lose this game. I don't think they'll have a problem with UMass, but you know, UMass did put up 28 last week against Boston college. Um, they're obviously not the, the most talented team around, but I, I, I could feel, I feel like this one feels like a two touchdown game to me for in the Eagles favor. Yeah, UMass kind of felt like the Bowling Green and Akron to me, just a team that really impresses with how they performed last week and especially their passing game, getting three touchdowns on that Boston college defense. So UMass is no pushover right now for a team like Eastern Michigan. That's really struggled this season, not a convincing win over St. Francis of the FCS in week one. And then I don't know how I worded it on the podcast last week. I don't know if I said Eastern Michigan was going to get shut out or their offense was going to shut out. Well, they're at least their offense got shut out against Wisconsin. They needed a 90 even score on the Badgers, which came as no surprise considering what Wisconsin's defense is. But Eastern Michigan really, they really couldn't produce anything in that game. Yeah. And uh, Preston Hutchinson and Ben Bryant both got stints at quarterback and they struggled to move the ball well. And then the they averaged less than one yard per carry in that game. And they really haven't got the ground game going this year. So I think Eastern Michigan should be able to figure some of this out against UMass. I think that the loss of uh, Keon Williams from the receiver position, he's a Buffalo now. I think that really has limited their receiving options with Dylan Drummond and Hassan Baidun having to carry so much of the load now. So Eastern Michigan's offense isn't as promising as I thought it might be going into the season, but I think that an opportunity will be there against the UMass team, which has allowed 48 points per game in its first two contests this year. But UMass, I said, it's, it's not a pushover at the moment because they, they dropped 28 points on Boston college's defense. Yeah. I'm with you, Steve. I, this, this feels like a little bit more of a, of a high scoring game to me. You mentioned, uh, you know, 
three touchdown passes. Brady Olson, freshman quarterback for uh, the Minutemen, has not uh, has has performed you know rather well. That was his first career start, uh, less than fifty percent completion, but still over two hundred over two hundred yards, three touchdowns. Did throw two interceptions there. I feel like though, as a freshman uh, starting quarterback making his second start. You'd like to think that the Eagles defense could get in there and, and rattle him a little bit and, and, you know, get home and get some pressure on him. I do have a lot of concerns with this Eastern Michigan offense right now, though, as you mentioned, really not able to get anything going against Wisconsin on Saturday. 92 yards of total offense, 16 yards on the ground. Preston Hutchinson and Ben Bryant neither looked great through the passing game. Obviously, uh, Wisconsin, a very good defense, but these issues popped up against St. Francis in week one, as you mentioned as well. So I do feel like the Eagles offense is eventually going to get going, but you make a very good point about Queon Williams leaving. I think we, you know, you look at it from the outside, you say, you see, okay, we still have Hassan Badoon here. We still have Connor new, uh, you know, Dylan Drummond has stepped up a little bit. You'd think that they'd be able to absorb that loss because of all those other guys, but it, it's really looking like Cleon Williams was, was more uh, prominent within that receiving group than we would have thought. I'll be interested to see what the quarterback rotation for Eastern Michigan looks like in this game, because Ben Bryant and Preston Hutchinson have very much kind of split duties thus far. I mean, Bryant had 10 attempts against uh, St. Francis Hutchinson with 12, and then uh, last week against Wisconsin, 13 for Hutchinson, seven for Bryant. So ve been very even in terms of the quarterback distribution thus far. It, I felt I was of the opinion coming into this year that Preston Hutchinson was the entrenched, you know, firm starting quarterback. But it seems like Chris Creighton is trying to get both of them involved. I'll be curious to see if they continue that moving forward. And it looks like from the UMass perspective, I think, the thing that would worry me if I'm a UMass fan is that the, the rush defense has not been good. I mean, you gave up 250 rushing yards, six yards of carry, three touchdowns last week. Week one against Pitt, uh, much of the same. You gave up 51 points, uh, 51 points overall, and Pitt in that game ran for 223 yards and five rushing touchdowns. So if I'm the Eagles, it feels like that's the matchup I'm going to try to exploit, really try and, and, and get Darius Boone going. I mean, you had really no rushing game against uh, Wisconsin on Saturday. They did pick up 221 yards on the ground against St. Francis in week one. So I think this game would be a nice way, uh, hopefully if you're an Eagles fan, ideally you'd like to see the run game get going a little bit here. Yeah, I do agree with that. And especially after what Wisconsin did to them, but you just have to shake it off and realize that Wisconsin does that to everybody. And UMass is definitely not the same competition that they'll be facing this week. Definitely not. Definitely not. So the Eagles uh, looking to get back into the win column here. Again, they are 18 point favorites. This one kicks at 3:30 on Saturday in Amherst. Ball State looking to bounce back from their first win in almost a calendar year. I'm sorry, their first loss in almost a calendar year. They went into Happy Valley uh, with high expectations. Weren't able to quite hang with the Nittany Lions. 44 to 13, your final there. They now travel out west to Laramie to take on the Wyoming Cowboys. Wyoming playing their second back-to-back -back Mac opponent after getting a 50-43 win in DeKalb last week over Northern Illinois. Steve, I got to be honest with you. Um, two weeks into the season, I don't love what I'm seeing from Ball State right now. No, Penn State is a difficult opponent. They're just like Wisconsin defensively. This is what I figured would happen when they went up to Happy Valley. They couldn't get the run game going. Drew Plitt struggled a little bit with two interceptions and 
didn't really have the efficiency that Ball State would hope to play out of him. Penn State did a solid job containing Justin Hall and the wide receiving core. And then the Nittany Lions established offense on their own and looked so much better than they did against the Badgers in week one. And they were able to rush for 240 yards compared to the Cardinals 69. So Penn State really put Ball State in a position where the Cardinals realize they have to get a lot better. And I thought Ball State's tune-up game against, was it Western Illinois? Yeah. yeah their tune-up game against Western Illinois was not the most convincing performance in that one. And I thought they gave up way too much through the air in that game. And I'm concerned about the, this upcoming matchup because Wyoming really showed last week that they do have an offense when it strikes. I know it didn't happen in week one, but Xavier Valade and Sean Chambers really did a good job of scoring early and often on the Huskies. So I'm, I'm a little scared that Ball State can get down early on the road in this one. And Wyoming's always a different environment to play in there. The air is thinner. It's a lot colder up in the mountains there. It's usually the first sight of snowfall in the college football season. So it's a, definitely an interesting place to play there. And Wyoming, they, they feel like they have all the momentum now after going well last week. And I don't know if – if you asked me before the season about this matchup, I'd say, yeah, Ball State finished number 23 last year. Wyoming struggled a bit. And now I feel like I might be turned in the opposite direction and think that Wyoming might be who I'd favor to win this one. Yeah, I uh, the, the, the Ball State performance against Penn State, to me, is not – that's not concerning in a vacuum in and of itself. I think anytime you're going mm-hmm. up – into a big 10 environment against a top 15 team, that's going to be an uphill battle. But when you do combine what happened this past Saturday with what happened in their week one game, where they really, really struggled to put away a Western Illinois team who is in the FCS and really not even that good of an FCS team. It's starting to seem like this offense. There's just there. I don't know. Something seems to be missing from this offense. And now you face this Wyoming team who, as we mentioned earlier, Steve, they got pressure on Rocky Lombardi all game on Saturday, uh, forced him into three interceptions. I think the Ball State offensive line can can handle that from a, a you know, from a protecting Drew Plitt perspective. I do, I am a little bit concerned about if they're going to be able to establish the run in this game, not because Wyoming has a great run defense, but just because Ball State has not really been able to do that this year. I mean, 2.7 yards per carry, against Penn State this past Saturday, which, again, we, we've talked about it. That's a great defense. But, I mean, even against even against uh, Western Illinois, you take out a couple of 30, you know, you, two Carson Steele runs that went for over 30 yards, a Will Jones run that went for over 20. You take those out of the equation, you're averaging, like, right around 2.83 yards per carry right now on the year. And I know it's I, – I know I'm doing, like, some statistical, you know – uh, you know, gymnastics, they're taking certain runs out of it, but, but nonetheless, I mean, this, there has no been, there has been no consistent run game for ball state thus far this year. And if you're going to put everything on drew Plitt and Justin hall, I mean, I guess that'll, that'll win you some games, but you can't rely on that every week. And this is also, when we look at the flip side, this is a Wyoming team that put up 50 points last week on Northern Illinois. And um, you know, Sean chambers, only through 23 passes, but two touchdowns, 200 yards through the air. They also got up near 200 yards on the ground. This seems like a very balanced offense for Wyoming. And um, the, the defense for Ball State, I'm not as concerned with right now. Mm-hmm. I think the, the defense seems to be a little bit further along. The offense for the Cardinals right now, though, something just looks a little bit off to me. And 
I'm not saying I'm hitting the panic button if I'm a Cardinals fan right now, but I'm starting to get a little bit concerned. And if, if Ball State comes out and does not perform well on Saturday, then that I'm definitely hitting that panic button. Yes, I, I liked what I saw from Carson Steele in the opener this year. He looks like a yeah. promising running back who could break some tackles and get for some big, strong runs. He's 6'1", 215, freshman. And, but I do think that Ball State really misses the presence of Ty Evans on that team right now, which Ty Evans hasn't played yet this season, and we don't know what his timetable to return is. So Evans missing out there just – I mean, he was great at picking up yards, and I thought he did a really good job of reading blocks. And he'd break out for a bunch of four or five yards, which would help Ball State get in better second down position like last year in the – MAC championship game and the bowl game against San Jose State. So I thought Evans did a great job ending the season and they missed that presence. But the one thing that would comfort me about Ball State against Wyoming is I like the firepower of their linebacking core. You have four all MAC linebackers there. You have Jimmy Daw, who is seeming to get better every single time he takes the field, the MAC championship MVP from 2020. So they were able to produce three. They were able to stop the Nittany Lions a few times in the backfield. And I think that if the linebacking core can do that against Wyoming, I don't think Wyoming's going to be able to establish the same offensive dominance that they were able to against NIU. Spread right now is Cowboys by seven, though. I think Ball State covers, but oh, I hate to do this, but am I going to pick a Wyoming win just because of the trends this season or do I not fall for that trap? You know, I'm, I'm honestly right there with you, Steve. Like I, I seven points feels like too much to me. This feels like it's going to be a coin flip game, but I I'm right there with you. I really might pick the Cowboys here. Another thing to consider when thinking about that potential look ahead spot here for ball state, because next week they got Toledo at home in a big Mac matchup. You think maybe the Cardinals are looking ahead to a divisional rival. Maybe I'm thinking too much into that, but nonetheless, perhaps another factor there. Um, yeah, I was interested. I was, I was kind of surprised to see Wyoming favored by an entire touchdown in this game. The total set at 55 kick on Saturday set for 4 PM Eastern in Laramie uh, ball state, making, uh, making the trip out to the Rocky mountains there before starting conference play next week, two games left to get here. Uh, Steve, we mentioned this one briefly earlier, Toledo. If you would have looked at this game, you know, when it got scheduled four or five years ago, you'd have thought this is a really good group of five matchup against with, with two really good programs. But with the state of Colorado State's program right now, 0-2, you lost to Vanderbilt on Saturday prior to or after uh, losing to an FCS foe in week one. Things not going well for Fort Col in Fort Collins right now for the Rams. Toledo, a 14-and-a-half point favorite in this one, 58-and-a-half the total here. Uh, I have a lot of confidence in the Rockets right now, Steve, especially after what they showed us on Saturday against Notre Dame. I don't see this one being very close. Yeah, they'll just have to get past the heartbreak in this one, and I think that Toledo should be able to win this one by a couple touchdowns. But then again, we did have that Toledo Bowling Green game that caught us all by surprise a few years ago. Sure. One thing I do want to point out was Toledo and Colorado State might have given us one of the wildest late-night finishes in recent history. This was in 2019 in September. Most people weren't aware of this game because at the same time, Washington State blew a, I think it was a 34-point lead to UCLA mm -hmm. on the same night, yeah. and that was also a very late finish. But in this game in 2019, Toledo had a Hail Mary stop. They stopped Colorado State, who caught a Hail Mary, but they stopped them on the one-yard line, the play before halftime. Then on the final play of the game, Colorado State caught a Hail Mary, and 
they got stopped on the one-yard line by Toledo. And they tried to fumble the ball forward and try to recreate the whole holy roller play in that one. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, Toledo's defense did a great job of stopping those Hail Marys. One other thing I want to talk about in that game was by the – let me just ensure that I have the facts right. By the 839 mark of the third quarter, there were five touchdowns scored in that quarter. Wow. And all, and all five of those scoring drives were over 70 yards. It wasn't like quick pick sixes or stuff. Those teams were running absolutely wild that night. Colorado State had a running back, Marvin Kinsey Jr., who had a 74-yard touchdown that quarter. And Bryant Kobach had a 47-yard touchdown, a 70 70- It was just these teams were running insane. And it was a, one of the most fun games to watch. But it's not one of those games that you just tell a college football fan, oh, remember Toledo, Colorado State in 2019? They won't remember it. So I think it's worth bringing up because it was that fun of a game to watch. But I don't think Saturday is going to replicate that. And I think Bryant Kobach and the Rockets should take care of business comfortably, especially being back at the glass bowl for this one. I can't believe I don't remember that game. I'm looking at, I'm going to have to see if I can find highlights of that on YouTube or something. I'm looking at the box score right now. <laughs> Brian Kobach, 19 carries for 228 yards and three touchdowns, 12 yards per carry. That's this is quite a box where I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to do some research here, see if I can find this uh, the highlight of this game on YouTube because that uh, those are ser- there's some serious fireworks they gave us there back in 2019. I wish uh, I wish we could predict something similar on Saturday for the Glass Bowl, but I think the the all of the every every metric you look at leans Toledo's way here. I mean. Even I, I was really impressed with Carter Bradley on Saturday, uh, mm-hmm. 18 for 28, 221 yards there for him. Brian Kobach had himself a nice game as well. I mean, this Toledo team, they really seem to be coming into their own with a lot of veteran talent. We've talked about how much returning talent they have. 97% of their re- production return this year tops in the nation. You look at Colorado State, just doesn't seem like much is working for them offensively or defensively. Uh, for for the uh, the Rams, who are again zero and two after that loss to Vanderbilt on Saturday, Vanderbilt entered that game having lost to an FCS opponent in Week One as well. So certainly uh, not a good place to be right now for for Rams fans. Uh, and uh, like I said, former Boston College coach Steve Adazio there, perhaps his seat starting to warm up a little bit in Fort Collins. Last game of the week here to take a look at Steve. Central Michigan makes their second trip of the season into SEC territory. They take on the LSU Tigers on uh, on Saturday night at 7:30 at on the uh, Eastern or I'm sorry on the SEC network. Uh, Central Michigan a 20 and a half point underdog in this game. The total 61 and a half. Central Michigan with uh, you know a 45 nothing shutout of Robert Morris on Saturday. Always tough to take too much from any of those uh, you know FCS matchups. However, the, uh, the passing game for the, uh, the run uh, for the Chippewas looked good. Sermon, uh, 12 for 16, three touchdowns. The run game, 310 yards on the ground for the Chippewas in this one. Obviously, it's a tall task going into LSU anytime you're taking on an SEC opponent. The Tigers coming off a 34-7 victory over FCS McNeese State. They did struggle against UCLA in week one, giving up 38 points to the, uh, the Bruins. Steve, this one here, LSU feels like a team that is on a downward trajectory to me, but I still, you know, 20 feels about right in this one to me. I'm not sure that I I would expect too much more from the Chippewas. What do you think? 
Same. I need to see more out of LSU, especially defensively, because usually you associate LSU with very good defenses, just pro talent all across the board. And that is not what I saw in that UCLA game when UCLA was just ran the ball rampant on them, had just a great running game with their two two back duo of Britton Brown and Zach Charbonnet. And then Dorian Thompson Robinson was able to complete a lot of long passes on them, especially to the tight end. So here's the thing about Central Michigan. They played Missouri very well. I don't know if Missouri or LSU is better this year. I know Mizzou beat them last year in Faro Field in Columbia, but I have no clue which team's going to be better this year. So Central Michigan should come into this game with the belief that they can compete with Coach O's Tigers. The problem for me in this one is this is the first Saturday night Death Valley game for the Tigers against an FBS opponent this year. And Saturday night in Death Valley is just a different breed. It's a different atmosphere. And I think it could be a little intimidating for opposing teams. And Central Michigan is going to really have to stay focused in this one because it's going to be loud. LSU's defense is going to have this, this anchor. They're going to have the whole state of Louisiana behind them every, every single snap. And I'm a little concerned about how Central Michigan can respond to that. And they won't be able to hear their signals as well. Things will just get shaky offensively. And especially with this team, I, I don't know how they'll be able to manage through that. I think Lou Nichols has a great grasp on the ground game, and LSU didn't really do well at containing the ground against UCLA. So I think Central Michigan is going to be able to move the ball, maybe score a few touchdowns in this one. But overall, I do think that LSU's offense – has the it factor to get past the chip walls in this one max johnson's really developing into a great quarterback kind of looks like his dad brad johnson at times and then Keishon butte is a wide receiver he had what about 300 yards in that Ole miss game last year had 148 and three touchdowns against ucla he is not going to be easy for central michigan to cover and i'm i'm very concerned about how butte performs against a chippewa secondary in this one yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. I think the the talent at the skill positions, I think, is just going to be a little bit too much for for the Chippewas to handle. And I think also when you look at the um, on on offense for Central Michigan, I mean, they've their 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 wide receiving room is so thin right now. They've had so many injuries at wide receiver. And I, you know, I, I hear what you're saying about having the belief, because I, I do feel like, you know, they they. In, within that locker room, they feel like they compete can compete against these teams after what they did against uh, against Missouri in Week One. I think the big thing, and you mentioned it though, is it's the atmosphere, right? This is um, going into Death Valley, especially at night, packed stadium. It's a different animal. It's a different animal, even compared to going to Missouri and after ha- after having not having had any to deal with any fans last year getting a little taste of it the last couple of weeks. I don't know how the Chippewas are going to respond there. I do think having a, a, a former power five transfer, uh, Jacob Sermon at quarterback, that might help a little bit as someone that's been, you know, in these stadiums, in these situations before. I'm not saying that he has any significant experience, but that, you know, he's, he's, he's been in these situations. I think that I, I see this one. I, I could see them keeping this close for a half. I just feel like the, 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 the skill position talent for the uh, for the Tigers. I don't think the Chippewa secondary is going to be able to keep up with that. Unfortunately, I could see this. I could see LSU winning. I feel like this spread is about right. I could see LSU pulling away in the second half, winning this one by, I, I don't know, twenty one or so. I could see like a 
41-20, something like that. I was going to say 45 to 21, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, something, okay, something okay. in that range. I could see Central Michigan getting into the end zone a few times, but I don't see them uh, seriously challenging the Tigers in this one. That's going to wrap up our, our Mac, uh, our Mac previews for week three here, Steve, before we, uh, before we go, any, anything else you're looking forward to this week, any other matchups outside of the Mac that you got your eyes on? I think a lot of people gloss over the schedule and say, it's not an intriguing one, but I feel the exact opposite this week. Penn state Auburn's a marquee game. And that one's going to be a really thrilling one. The whiteout and happy Valley. We just talked about death Valley. That's probably a top three atmosphere in college football. And another one is Happy Valley during a, a whiteout. It's insanely loud. I rewatched the Michigan Penn State game on YouTube today, just highlights from 2019 to see how loud it gets when all the fans are in the building. Yeah. And it, it is intense. And Auburn's a tough team to gauge right now because they haven't really played anyone. Apologies to Akron there, but uh, <laughs> Penn State has a great defense. Auburn has a great defense so far, and that should be a fun one in Happy Valley. But here are some other games on the schedule that I think are just good sleeper games. One of them would be – I think Purdue-Notre Dame could be pretty intriguing because Purdue's 2-0 right now, and Notre Dame Agreed. doesn't really look unbeatable. So I think that one could have some intrigue. Michigan State and Miami. I am high on the Spartans right now. Kenneth Walker ran all over Northwestern in the opening week, and they were able to easily trounce their FCS opponent last week with a pretty good offensive showing in that one too. So I think that Michigan State's built very well offensively. Peyton Thorne had four touchdown passes last week. And I'm not really sure. Uh, I know Miami delivered a promising win over App State last week, but this one seems like a pretty evenly matched game, and I love that one in the 11 a.m. slate. I also love Virginia Tech, West Virginia. Virginia yeah. Tech got up to 2-0 and with that nice win over UNC with a stout defensive showing in the opening week. Then West Virginia, they bounced back from their Maryland loss with a 66-0 shutout in the following week. So I think that one's going to be good. And I'm pretty sure that there is a trophy on the line between Virginia Tech and West Virginia, the Black Diamond Trophy. So that's a rivalry yeah. matchup. And just let's see if I can name like two, three other matchups, because I know that there were a lot that I liked this week. I like the Mississippi State Memphis matchup. Memphis has a really good true freshman quarterback named Seth Hennigan, who lit it up with over 400 yards and five touchdowns last week. And then Mississippi State has an air raid offense of their own. So this is a game that I can think both teams would could score over 50 points and we'll have a nice old fashioned Memphis shootout in that one at the Liberty Bowl. <laughs> And they also banned cowbells from the Liberty Bowl, so that's another storyline for that game. Inch, did they really? I didn't hear that. Yeah, Memphis tweeted it out on their own account today. I'm like, why would you do this? You're just setting Hilarious. yourself up for bad PR. Yeah, you're not wrong about that. And then last game that I want to talk about is Oklahoma State, Boise State. No team that is undefeated has disappointed me more than the pokes of Oklahoma State. Only beat Morgan State, an FCS team, by a touchdown. And then last week, they struggled with Tulsa until L.D. Brown took a kick return to the house late in the game. So Oklahoma State has been a little concerning so far. I think Boise State has a great team going around it. They fell short against UCF but really bounced back, and they just scored it seemed minute after minute last week against UTEP on that Friday night showdown. So I think that's going to be a fun one at Albertson Stadium on the blue turf. And also, Boise State has a new dog that recovers its kicking tees this year. Yes. So that'll be a fun thing to watch when watching Boise versus Mike Gundy's team up north, northwest there. 
Yeah, o- Oklahoma State, Boise State was going to be one of the ones I mentioned. You you covered all a couple of the others that I had on my list as well. One that you didn't mention that is intriguing to me, um, a late night matchup, Arizona State traveling to oh, Provo yes. to take on BYU. I was really, really impressed. I, I hadn't watched BYU uh, until I saw them play Utah this past Saturday. I was really impressed with what I saw from the Cougars, especially on defense. Be curious to see if they're for real. Same thing with Arizona State. There's some expectations around the Sun Devils right now. I really like watching Jaden Daniels, their quarterback. So uh, that's a really intriguing matchup to me. And then the last one, I just got to say it. It's great to have the 12.30 a.m. Hawaii kickoff back. The Rainbow (laughs) Warriors taking on San Jose State. uh, Sunday morning, I guess, 12.30 uh, the kick from the island on uh, FS1. Love staying up late and watching uh, those Hawaii games as I fall asleep on my couch late. So a couple late night matchups that I'm really looking forward to that if you're a night owl, you're looking for a college football fix Saturday evening, you can tune into those two games and get your fix. Completely agree with that. All right. So that's going to wrap it up for us here. Uh, episode 63 of the Mid-American Bandwagon Podcast. He is Steve Helwick. I am Zach Folador. Thank you for listening. As always, Uh, We look forward to talking to you next week. Have a great weekend. Enjoy all the football. We'll see you back here next Friday.